Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father God, we uh, listen to that song, Lord, and uh, Father, I, I know, God, that that is where you want us to get to in life, in a place where we could say that our wealth is, is truly in the cross, and there's nothing more uh, that we want, Father. But God, uh, that's a hard place to get to, Lord, uh, to, to sing that, to say that, and to truly believe that. And so, Father, I pray that through your word today in this passage we're going to look at, God, I pray that you would bring us a step towards that, Father. I pray that you would show us uh, your design for money and what it can do and what it can't do, God. That, Father, as we do touch on what is a touchy subject, Lord, uh, I, I admit, Father, I need your grace. I need your wisdom to communicate this in the way that it, it, it needs to be communicated, God. Really, what I need to do is get out of the way and allow your word and your Holy Spirit to do their work. And so, God, that's what I ask for here tonight. Uh, would you would you prepare our hearts to hear this, God, and would we come away different because of what your word says? And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, do me a favor, grab your Bibles if you can, and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is where we are today. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, easiest way to find Ecclesiastes in your Bible is to use the table of contents, okay? <laughs> Every Bible, just so you know, has with it a table of contents. For some reason, Christians don't like to use it. I have never understood why it's so easy. Look in the table of contents, look in the Old Testament, you'll see a book called Ecclesiastes. It even tells you the page number that it's on. You can turn there, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. And as you turn there, I have a question that I want to ask all of you. And this is a question that you don't have to answer out loud. In fact, I'd ask you not to answer out loud, please. But the question is this. Can money buy happiness? Can money buy satisfaction? What do you think about that? Can money buy happiness? Can money buy satisfaction? Now, I know, brothers and sisters, I know how we all think we're supposed to answer that question, right? We've been in far too many church services where we've heard the pastor talk about money. Maybe we've heard those horror stories of people who have run into a lot of money and uh, their lives have been destroyed as a result. And so like Pavlov's dogs, we hear, can money buy happiness? And immediately inside we say, well, no, absolutely not. I know that's what we say. But do we really believe that? I know we say that. But do we really believe that? Several years ago, there was a book that was written that has become sort of a classic on the subject. It's called The Consuming Passion, Christianity and the Consumer Culture. And in a chapter entitled Money and Misery, author David Myers writes the following. He says, does money buy happiness? Does money buy happiness? Few of us would say yes. But if you asked a different question, would a little more money make you a little happier? Many of us would reply with a smirk and a nod. There is, we believe, some connection between wealth and well-being. Asked in a recent survey how satisfied they were with 13 different aspects of their lives, including friends, house, and schooling, respondents were least satisfied with the amount of money that they had to live on. When interviewers from the University of Michigan's Institute for Social Research asked what hampers the search for the good life, the most common answer was, we're short of money. When asked what would improve your life quality, more money was the most frequent answer. Asked by the Roper Organization in 1992, so this is a bit dated, but the principle still applies. Asked by the Roper Organization in 1992 to name an annual income they needed to fulfill their dreams. The average American answered $83,800. But three years later, in 1995, the response had grown by $20,000. It was now $102,000. 
Think of this as today's American dream. Life, liberty, and the purchase, not the pursuit, but the purchase of happiness. Can money buy happiness? I know that we don't like to think that it can. But I also know that if you were to examine many of our lives, you would probably be hard-pressed to find proof that we don't believe it can in some way. I mean, how else do you explain the proverbial rat race that many in this world find themselves on, many in this church probably find themselves on? I mean, if I were to sit down with each and every one of you, especially those of you who work full-time, who are in the prime of your careers, and if I were to ask you, where do you want to be in five years and ten years, I cannot imagine very many people here would say, well, I want to be exactly where I am right now, making exactly what I make right now. In fact, I would imagine that if many of us were in a situation like that, we would be frustrated. And we probably start looking for something else. You know, if I were to ask you where you want to be in five years or ten years, I would imagine those of you who are associates at the companies you work for, you'd say that you want to be vice presidents. Vice presidents would say that they want to be partners or presidents or CEOs. Those who own your own company, you would say that you want to have your company be more successful. You want to have additional revenue streams. You, you want to grow your company. And what is it that lies behind this desire? What is it that lies behind this drive? Well, I'm sure it's a few things. I'm sure in part it's a desire to prove to ourselves what we're capable of, what we're able to do. I have no doubt about that. I'm sure part of what lies behind this desire is a, is a desire to, to leave a legacy for our children, to show them the example of hard work. I have no doubt about that as well. But I'm also fairly positive that if we're honest with ourselves, I mean really honest with ourselves, at least part of what lies behind that desire is a desire for more income and for the freedom and the flexibility and, dare I say it, the increased satisfaction and happiness we think that it will bring us. There is this desire and drive within in many of us for more and bigger and better. But what exactly is this push for more? What exactly is it providing for us? Is it providing for us what we hope it will? Is it providing for us what we think it will? As I said a little bit ago, we're in a series called Satisfy. And what we're doing in this series is we're taking a look at what it is that leads to true satisfaction and true fulfillment here in this life. And where this series comes from is a belief that I believe very strongly because I believe the Bible teaches it. And that is that our God wants us to be satisfied in this life. He wants us to be filled, fulfilled. But I also believe, and this is what I talked about last week, I also believe that what God says is going to satisfy us and fulfill us and what the world out there says is going to satisfy us and fulfill us are two very different things. And since God is our creator, we believe here, since God is our maker, I believe we need to listen to what God says because I believe God knows what's best for us. And so today, we're going to talk on the subject of being satisfied in money, satisfied in finances. And in order to do that, we're going to look at a section of scripture that, to be honest with you, I had not paid much attention to before I was preparing for this message, but I have absolutely fallen in love with this particular section of scripture. And the reason why is because I think it provides one of the most honest looks at money, not just in the Bible, but in perhaps all of literature. 
And as I was studying this passage, it was the opening sentence, it was the opening verse that especially drew me in. Look with me at verse 10 of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. The author of Ecclesiastes tradition tells us a man by the name of Solomon, who perhaps was one of the wealthiest people who ever lived, he writes the following, Ecclesiastes 5.10. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. Let me read that again because it deserves another read. He writes, whoever loves money never has enough, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. And the observation that Solomon makes about money here, and by the end of this message, I'm going to give you three observations that Solomon makes about money from this passage. The observation that Solomon makes about money here is that money does not satisfy. That money does not satisfy. As he says here, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Solomon makes the point here that money does not satisfy. Now, before I go any further, I need to make something abundantly clear here. So there's no misunderstanding, okay? And what I need to make clear is that the Bible never condemns money, brothers and sisters. Okay? The Bible never condemns wealth. You will never find a verse in the Bible that says that money is wrong. You'll never find a verse in the Bible that says having a lot of money is wrong, okay? The Bible never condemns money. But what the Bible does condemn, and that's what you see in this particular verse, what the Bible does condemn is the love of money, the love of wealth. And that's what you see here, right? Whoever loves money, whoever loves wealth. What the Bible does condemn is when you make your life about the pursuit of more money, about the pursuit of more income, and that if that is the driving or one of the driving pursuits in your life, the observation that this verse makes is that you'll never be satisfied, that you'll never get to a place where you say, okay, I have enough, I don't need any more. Why? Because money does not satisfy. I'm sure that many of you have heard the, the famous story of John D. Rockefeller. We pastors love to tell this story, so I'm sure that many of you have heard of it. But John D. Rockefeller lived in the early 1900s. He was an oil magnate. And estimates say that he, he was probably, he was the wealthiest man alive when he, when he was living. And in fact, people today say that he's probably the wealthiest American who has ever lived. Modern day estimates put his wealth at about $392 billion in today's money. $392 billion. Well, the story goes that one day he sat down for an interview and the reporter asked him the following. He said, Mr. Rockefeller, he said, how much money is enough money? How much money is enough money? And how did Mr. Rockefeller reply? You know the answer, right? What did he say? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Here, the wealthiest person who ever lived is not satisfied with his income. Why? Because as Solomon says here, money does not satisfy. But listen, we don't have to look to the ultra-rich to see that this is the case. We can look at our own lives, can't we? I mean, as I examine my own life, I have found that there is this game that I am in danger of playing. And the game goes something like this. You know, as I look at my, my income right now, my wife and my income, I look at it and I go, you know what? We're doing, we're doing great right now, okay? We're doing great. We have enough income every month to take care of our expenses, and then some. We have enough left over to save and to have some fun, go on trips every once in a while, something like that. We're doing really good. But I also know that if I'm not careful, 
there's this thought that can creep into my mind, and the thought goes like this. You know what? We are doing really good right now, but I'll tell you what. If we had just a little bit more money coming in every month, you know, if we had not a lot, not a lot, but if we just had just a little bit more coming in every month, man, then I would really be set. Then I'd never want anything ever again. And maybe some of you have felt that same way too. And what happens? You get that raise, you get that promotion, you, you get that extra revenue stream, and you do get a little bit more coming in. And at first it's great, right? Because there is more freedom, and there is more flexibility. But pretty soon what happens? Pretty soon your level of expenses rises to meet your new level of income. And all of a sudden there's something else out there that you want that you can't quite afford. And what do you begin thinking? You know, things are really good right now. But if I could have just a little bit more, then I'd be set. Then I'd never want anything ever again. And it's a never-ending cycle, right? It's a never-ending game that we play. Why? Because as Solomon says here, because money does not satisfy. Because money does not fulfill. Because there is always more out there that you can have. This past week, I read a really interesting article, kind of a funny article, about a resort in Hawaii. It's actually more like a country club in Hawaii. It, it caters to the ultra-rich. It caters to millionaires, and it caters to billionaires. And you can imagine who at this particular resort gets the most attention. It's the billionaires. And what this article is about is it's about how the millionaires are starting to get upset at this resort because they're made to feel less than than the billionaires. That there are certain restaurant reservation times and there are even certain chairs by the pool. There are certain chase lounges that are only reserved for the billionaires. And really what this article is about is it's about how the millionaires have decided to sue the resort for creating what one person had the audacity to refer to as an apartheid-like experience. You know, like South Africa in the 1980s, or own civil rights era in the 1950s and 60s. They're suing this resort for creating this class distinction. And as I read this article, you know what I thought? Cry me a river, right? Cry me a river of silver and gold, but cry me a river. I mean, I would be content to stay at the Motel 6 by the airport if it got me to Hawaii, but it illustrates my point. It's never enough. There's always more out there that you can have. Why? Because money does not satisfy. And it's this first problem that Solomon observes. That's what leads to the second problem. And the second problem that Solomon observes, the second observation that Solomon makes, is that money does not solve all of our problems. Money does not solve all of our problems. In fact, what Solomon says is not only does money not solve all of our problems, money actually has the effect of creating new ones. You know, one of the reasons why people pursue money is because there is this feeling that, yeah, I have a lot of problems right now, and I think a lot of these problems would be alleviated if I had more money. And listen, I have no doubt that more money does alleviate some problems in our life, but it doesn't solve all of them. In fact, it can create new ones. And in this passage, Solomon highlights two problems that money can create. The first one is found in verse 11. Look with me there. Solomon writes this. He says, As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? Let me read that again. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? Now, you know what this verse is talking about? I didn't get this initially. I had to do a lot of research on it, but I finally got it. You know what this verse is talking about? It's talking about moochers. 
Truly, it's talking about moochers. It's talking about the fact that when you make a lot of money, all of a sudden you become surrounded by all these people who want a cut of what you're making. It's talking about moochers. As it says here, as goods increase, so as money and wealth increase, so do those who consume them, so do those who want a piece of what you're making. And then it says this, and what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? In other words, all the wealth they can do is just sit back and watch as other people try to get a cut of what it is that they're making. It's talking about moochers. And it's true, isn't it? You know, it's been said before, what's the best way to find a long-lost relative? What's the best way to find a friend from high school that you haven't seen in a few years? Don't search for them on Facebook or the internet. Just get really wealthy really quickly. They will be on your front porch the next morning trying to reconnect with you. And some of you have experienced that, I know. Your business has taken off. You've come into a lot of money. And all of a sudden, the people who have come out of the woodwork trying to be your friend, trying to offer your ser their services, trying to be your consultant and tax advisor and lawyer and people who cut your grass and people who clean your house and, and people who walk your dog. In addition to that, you've had sponging relatives who have come out of the woodwork, your second cousin twice removed, who shows up with some sob story about what they're going through. And by the way, a couple of grand would really, really help right now, right? And you don't know who to trust. You don't know who's telling the truth. And it is, I don't think it's any uh, uh, coincidence that some of the most isolated people in the world, I'm thinking of someone like Howard Hughes, have also been the wealthy. Because that's one of the problems that money creates. It creates the problem of, of distrust because all these people come after you wanting to get rich off of you. So that's the first problem. The second problem that Solomon says money creates is money creates its own anxiety. Money creates its own stress. Again, I know one of the reasons why people pursue money is because one of the greatest worries that many of us have is will we be able to take care of ourselves? Will we be able to take care of those who, who we love? And the idea is that if we hit it really big, then, uh, then we won't have to worry about that anymore, and then we'll be able to have peace. But does money really bring peace? Solomon, God, would say no. Look with me at verse 12. He says, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Let me read that again. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. And what is Solomon saying here? He's say, making an observation that all of us have made before. And that is that those at the top have a lot more stress than those at the bottom. That those at the top of a company, those at the top of an industry, those at the top of a field have a lot more on their shoulders and therefore a lot more anxiety than, than the guy who just punches in and out the clock every single day. And when I was in the financial world, when I was at Goldman Sachs, I absolutely saw this to be the case. You know, I hope I have not oversold my experience at Goldman Sachs. Make no mistake about it. I, I was a low-level employee at Goldman Sachs. I was an analyst. I was near the bottom of the org chart. And yes, my job was tough at times. And yes, I worked long hours. But I'll tell you what. When I was done for the day, I was done for the day. When I had completed the tasks that had been given to me to complete that day, and I worked out, walked out the front doors of that office building, I did not think about my work. I did not care about my work until I walked in the next morning. But it was exactly at the point when uh, my task was done that my higher-ups, my bosses, the ones who were making the big bucks, it's exactly at that point that they started worrying. Because they were the ones who had to meet with the client the next morning. They were the ones who had to make the sale. 
And they knew that if they did not seal the deal at that meeting the next morning, then when they got in the office that afternoon, they would get a tongue lashing from their bosses who were even more stressed out than they. And it would never fail. I'd wake up at 7 a.m., 8 a.m. on the day of a big meeting, and they never let us analysts go to the meetings because they were afraid that we would embarrass them. And so I would wake up after a really good night's sleep, and I would look at my email, and I'd see all these emails back and forth between my bosses at 2 a.m. and 3 a.m., and it was obvious what was going on. They were so stressed out about the meeting that they couldn't sleep. And on more than a few occasions, I would look at that, and I would go, is it worth it? Is what they're making, is it worth it? Is it worth the pressure and the stress? Is it worth the sleepless nights? Is it worth the time that is being taken away from their family? Is it worth it? I'm sure some of you have heard this story before. It's a very familiar story, but it's, I think, very appropriate for for a passage like this. The story is called The Fisherman and the Businessman, and it goes like this. There once was a businessman who was sitting by a beach in a small village. As he sat, he saw a fisherman rowing a small boat towards the shore, having caught quite a few big fish. The businessman was impressed, and he asked the fisherman, Hey, how long did it take you to catch so many fish? The fisherman replied, Oh, just a short while, just a couple of hours. The businessman was astonished. He said, Why don't you stay longer at sea and catch even more? Well, because this is enough to feed my whole family, the fisherman replied. The businessman was confused, and so he asked, So what do you do for the rest of the day? The fisherman replied, well, you know, I usually wake up early in the morning, I go out to sea and catch a few fish, and then I go back home and I play with my kids. In the afternoon, I take a nap with my wife, and when evening comes, I join my buddies in the village, and we play guitar, sing, and dance throughout the night. The businessman thought about this for a moment, and then offered a suggestion to the fisherman. He said, you know, I'm an expert in business management. He said, I could help you become a more successful person. From now on, you should spend more time at sea, and you should try to catch as many fish as possible. When you have saved enough money, you could buy a bigger boat and catch even more fish. Soon you'll be able to afford to buy more boats. You can set up your own company, your own production plant for canned food and a distribution network. By then, you'll have moved out of this village into the city where you can set up headquarters to manage your other branches. The fisherman thought about this for a while and said, and then what? The businessman laughed, and then what? Well, after that, you can live like a king in your own house, and when the time is right, you can go public and float your shares in the stock exchange, and you will be rich. The fisherman thought about this again for another moment, and he asked, okay, and then what? The businessman laughed again, and then what? And then what? Well, after that, you can finally retire. You can move to a house by the fishing village. You can wake up early in the morning, catch a few fish, and then return home to play with your kids, have a nice afternoon nap with your wife, and when evening comes, you can join your buddies in the village, play the guitar, sing, and dance throughout the night. The fisherman was puzzled. But isn't that what I'm doing now? But isn't that what I'm doing now? Now, I know, men and women, in 21st century capitalistic American society, we don't like a story like this. This is the type of story you're hiding from your 22-year-old son who doesn't work and spends all day on his couch playing video games, right? I know that. But this passage forces us to wrestle with the principles in this story. Statistics don't lie. We are the most stressed out. We are the most anxious generation ever. We're also one of the wealthiest. Do you think that's a coincidence? What exactly are we trying to achieve? What exactly are we working so hard for? Money does not satisfy. 
Money does not solve all of our problems. It creates new ones. Third observation that Solomon makes is that money doesn't last, that money is fleeting. You know, if I wanted to, I, I could spend the entire message up here talking about those who have come into money and either their lives or the lives of their kids have been ruined as a result of it. I mean, all you have to do is look and see what's going on in Hollywood right now to see the problems inherent with money, right? So with so many problems that are attached to money, why do so many make their lives about it? Why do so many try to pursue it throughout their entire lives? I've been thinking a lot about this this past week. And I think it's actually tied to what I talked about last week. I think deep down, men and women, all of us realize how weak we really are. I think deep down, all of us realize our own limitations, and we don't like it. We want to feel powerful. We don't want to feel weak. And let's be honest. Though money does not bring fulfillment and satisfaction, money does talk in this world. And it commands a sense of respect. And I think many people like the power that comes with money in this world. But any power that comes with money is ultimately a fleeting power. It's a fleeting power because it can be taken away from us. It can be taken away from us in a couple of ways. First of all, it can be taken away from us at some point during our lives here on this earth. And this is what Solomon says in verses 13 and 14. He says, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. I was reading this past week about the financial crisis again in 2007-2008. They estimate within the course of a few months, $19.2 trillion disappeared from the pocketbooks of Americans. $19.2 trillion, gone like that. Money can be taken away from us in this life. Money is also fleeting because not only can it be taken away from us, it will be taken away from us. Because we can't carry, with it, uh, carry it with us into heaven. We can't carry it with us into eternity. And that's what Solomon says in verse 15. He says, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. And as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil. And they can carry nothing in their hands. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. And as everyone comes, so they depart. I've been present for the birth of both of my children. None of them have come into this world clutching a $100 bill, much to my disappointment. <laughs> I'm hoping the third one breaks the trend. <laughs> I've also been at the bedside as a few people have left this earth. I've never seen anybody clutching anything more than a blanket or a sheet. And even that, they don't take with them. Not only can money be taken away from us, it will be one day. And so since money can't be taken with us into eternity, what sense does it make making our whole lives about it here on this earth? To Solomon, it makes no sense. Verse 16, this too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in dark darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anguish. All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anguish. Are you finding yourself angry a lot? Are you finding yourself frustrated a lot? Can I suggest to you that it may be a sign whether you realize it or not, that you've fallen in love with money and that you have tried to seek satisfaction and fulfillment in this life from something that cannot bring it, of course you're going to be frustrated. Of course you're going to be angry. Well, if that describes you, i got great news for you today. God wants to set you free from that. And God wants to show you what true satisfaction and true fulfillment looks like 
in regards to money. And it's actually really simple. There's just two principles that we need to grab a hold of. One of which comes from this particular passage, and one that doesn't come from this passage, but it comes from another passage in Scripture that's very similar. Let's deal with that one first. You want to find satisfaction and fulfillment in money? The first thing that you need to do, first thing that we all need to do, is to be willing to give it away. We need to be generous with it. As I said, we don't find this in this passage, but we find it in a very similar passage in our Bible. You can write this reference next to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It's 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. We'll put it on the screen. Paul writes the following. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Verse 18 is the key for us. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. How do we find satisfaction and fulfillment in money? We're generous with it. The Bible is universal on this. One of the reasons that God has given us income, one of the reasons that God has given us wealth, and I know a lot of us in this room, we, we may not feel very wealthy, but wealth is relative, men and women. And in relation to the world, if you make $20,000 a year in relation to the world, you are in the top 10% of income earners in relation to the world. And one of the reasons that God has given us income and wealth is to share it with other people. It's to give it to other people. And when we do that, the Bible makes it clear that something happens. And that is that we are blessed. That God blesses us. Now, I don't mean that he blesses us financially. Though, a lot of times, honestly, God does that. But the blessing that I think God gives us is an intangible sort of blessing. I think it's a blessing of fulfillment and satisfaction. Or said more simply, I think when we are generous, we are happier in this life. I think it makes us happy. That's what I've seen in my own life. Now, just so you know, generosity has not been something that has come easy for me. I've always given away a portion of my income away, but, but that's been done mainly out of obligation, honestly, not because I truly wanted to. It wasn't until a few years ago when God showed me how fun it can be to be generous. And you know how he showed me? He made my wife and I the recipients of other people's generosity. A few years ago, we were going through a very tight financial situation. And, and we basically had enough money to cover our expenses and, and not very much left over for freedom or fun or anything like that at all. And so we were really in just kind of this lean time. And I remember one Saturday in particular, right in the, the middle of all of this, I went out to the mailbox early Saturday morning to see if the mail had come yet, and it hadn't come yet. But instead in the mailbox was a small white envelope, nothing written on it, no markings. And I opened it up, and there were five $20 bills, 100 bucks. Doesn't sound like very much. But in the season that we were in, this was like a breath of fresh air to us. And I remember looking at that and just the biggest smile coming across my face. And I remember running inside and sneaking upstairs so my wife wouldn't find out about it. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. No, I remember telling my wife about it. And I think she got tears in her eyes. And really, this started this whole season where just unexpectedly, out of nowhere, we, we had just people be generous, most of which were completely anonymous to us. And, and, and my wife and I were so overwhelmed by this generosity 
that we decided if God ever got us out of that financial situation, that we wanted to do for other people what people had done for us. And I got to tell you, one of my favorite times, truly one of my favorite times of the month, is the beginning of the month when I get to set aside a portion of my income to be generous to other people because I know how it feels to receive. And I can't wait to do that for other people. You want to find satisfaction and fulfillment in money? Give it away. Be generous with it. And just so you know, the Bible does give us a couple of guidelines on generosity. The first guideline is that that we should budget for generosity. We should budget for generosity. What I mean by that is, rather than wait till the end of the month to see how much we have left over to be generous with, instead at the beginning of the month, at the beginning of a pay period, in the same way that we know we need to set aside this amount of money for this and this amount of money for this, we should set aside a certain portion of our income just to be generous with. How much? That's between you and God. I think a good starting place, and yes, I did say starting place, is actually 10% of our income. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were commanded to give 10% of their income to to the temple, to God, basically, just in an act of generosity. And I believe that's a good place to start for us today. But but, but no matter what, the guideline is to to budget for generosity. The second guideline that the Bible gives us is that the the top priority when we are generous is we we, we are generous to organizations like the church which further the spread of the gospel of Jesus. We believe that the greatest need that people have is a spiritual need. And so we want to give to organizations that help meet the spiritual needs of people. And once that has taken our first priority, then anything above that, anything other than that, then we're free to give wherever we want. Those are the two guidelines, but the underlying principle is simple. We're generous. We're willing to give it away. That's the first thing, to find satisfaction in money. Second principle we find in this passage. We find it especially in verse 19. Solomon writes the following. He says, Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. And you know what verse 19 is talking about? Verse 19 is telling us that one of the things that God wants us to do with our finances to find satisfaction and fulfillment is to enjoy what we have. To enjoy what we have. That's what it says. God gives us the ability to enjoy them. God has not given us money. He has not given us wealth to make us feel guilty about it. To make us feel guilty that we have and other people do not have. That's not the reason why God has given us money, okay? Throughout the Bible, God is seen as a giver of good gifts. And he gives us good gifts so that we can enjoy them. And so as long as we're being generous, as long as we're willing to share what's left over, God wants us to enjoy. He wants us to enjoy what we have. Not focus on what we don't have. Not focus on what other people have that we don't have, that we can't afford. That's not a way to be satisfied, but to actually enjoy what it is that we have. A couple of weeks ago, I made a big mistake. My son Lucas is turning four at the end of this month, if you can believe it, November 30th. And uh, the mistake that I made is I uh, gave him a toy catalog that we got in the mail. (laughs) And I gave it to Lucas. I said, Lucas, your birthday's coming up. I want you to look through this catalog. Tell me what you want for your birthday. That's a horrible idea, right? What does a four-year-old do with a toy catalog? He wants everything. And so we spent the next 10 minutes, page by page, ooh, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that, next page. I want that, I want that, I want that, next page. I want that, I want that, ooh, I think Madison would like that. I want that, I want that, I want that. And, and, and the thing is, men and women, my son is not lacking in the toy department. 
He has a lot. He doesn't pay play with 98% of what he has, and yet he wants more. But I can't come down hard on my son. We do the same thing, don't we? How many shirts do we have in our closet? How many pants? How many pairs of shoes? How many blouses? How many sweaters? Whatever it may be. And yet every morning we open up our closet, and what do we say? Ugh, I have nothing to wear, right? <laughs> How many pieces of athletic equipment do you have in your garage or worse, in some storage facility somewhere that you visit once a year? I think in my life, in my life, literally thousands of dollars in my life have been invested in video games. I don't even like video games, but I've spent for some reason all this money on them. And yet a Saturday night rolls around and I go, oh, I'm so bored. I got nothing to do, right? And then especially at this time of year, Christmas season, my birthday's coming up, and I look around and I go, ooh, I want that, and I want that, and I want that, and I want that. I'm just like my four-year-old. It's just that my stuff is a lot more expensive. <laughs> That's no way to satisfaction. This season, rather than focus on what you don't have, enjoy what you have. Enjoy what God has given you. That's how you seek fulfillment and finances. You're generous with it, and you enjoy what you have. That's what God says. You know, one of the privileges that I get being a pastor, men and women, is uh, I get the privilege from time to time to do a funeral service. And I haven't done a ton of them in my lifetime. I've, I've done maybe 12, 15, something like that. But, but between the funeral services I have done and the ones that I've attended, I estimate that I've probably heard, you know, 75 people talk about those who have passed. And in those 75 people that I have heard share about those who have passed, I have never heard a single person talk about how much someone made. I've never heard a single person talk about salary. The only time money has ever come up in a funeral is when one person tells about how generous another person was. Now, isn't that interesting? So much of so many people's lives, one of the key criteria into how so many people make decisions is related to finances. And yet, at the end of someone's life, nobody talks about it. Why? Because we know that when someone passes, it doesn't mean anything. How sad it is that some people realize that when it's too late. I believe what I said last week, brothers and sisters. True fulfillment and true satisfaction in this life is only found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when we focus on Jesus, it's like the words of that old hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Where's your focus this week? Is your focus on this? Or is it on Jesus? Believe it or not, there's coming a day when this is going to mean nothing at all. I was going to throw it, but I'm not going to do it. Okay? <laughs> I come to the last service. I'll think about it. You want to find true fulfillment and satisfaction in this life? Start living like this is true today. Would you do me a favor and pray with me? Father God, uh, I believe at the end of the day, Money is, is a tool, Lord, 
a tool that you've given us for other purposes, for other reasons. And it's when we use it as that tool, God, that's when we find that fulfillment and satisfaction. And Father, one of the greatest ways that we can use money is to further your kingdom, Lord. To, to, to see more people come to faith in Jesus Christ, Father. And when we do that, the Bible says that in eternity, those people will come up to us and they will, they will thank us for the way that our generosity affected them. And so, God, I, I pray, Father, I thank you that this church is a generous church, Lord. It is a generous church, Lord. And I just pray that you would, you would allow us to continue to grow in that, Father. God, I pray that anybody who may recognize today, you know what, I think I've, I've started to love money. God, I pray that you would set them free from that. Lord, I pray that you would use the words of your book to see uh, just how, how ultimately meaningless that is, Father. And God, how true fulfillment and satisfaction is come, only comes through you. And God, I pray that all of us would just get a better vision, Lord, of, of how to use our finances in a way that is pleasing to you. And God, I thank you that we can enjoy what we have. How amazing it is that you give us these things to enjoy in this life, Father. And I pray that we would not focus on what other people have that we don't have, that we want, Father. But we would take joy in what you have given us, Lord. And so I thank you for that, Father. And God, I pray that in all of this we just would not miss, Father, your son Jesus. And God, if there's anybody here today who doesn't know Jesus, I pray that you would open up their hearts so that they can receive him, Father and see the true satisfaction and fulfillment that comes from following him. So we love you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. Help us to turn our eyes towards Jesus every moment of every day. And we ask all this in your son's name. Amen.